The villages of Tuscany come complete with castles, Chianti, and charm. And on top of the hill, where I saw maybe the most beautiful sunset I've ever seen in Tuscany, there is a 14th century village. Coming up, we'll hear the best things about living in Tuscany, where rivalries from the Middle Ages still echo on today's soccer fields. The Sienese fans are chanting to the Florentines, Ricordate Montaperti. Remember Montaperti. Remember that time in 1260 when we beat you. And a paleomammologist reminds us of the spectacular creatures that once occupied the places we live and visit long before any tourists showed up. People know about Komodo dragons from Indonesia, but a very close relative, but very much larger, lived in Australia about 40,000 years ago. This was a huge, huge monster, maybe 30 feet long. It's all in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Come along. There were stranger creatures than you can ever imagine roaming the earth until maybe a few thousand years ago, like lemurs the size of gorillas and 500-pound birds. Coming up a little later in the hour on today's Travel with Rick Steves, Ross McPhee from the American Museum of Natural History tells us what they've learned about the megafauna. So many people are so crazy about Italy. And in Italy, you've got all of these distinct regions and provinces that are just, they got their own personality. And for a lot of people, the quintessence of Italy is Tuscany. I want to learn more about Tuscany. I want to learn about the villages of Tuscany. I want to learn about the hill towns. I want to learn about the cuisine. And the best way to do that is to talk with some friends who have fallen in love with Tuscany, or maybe fallen in love with a Tuscan and moved there. I've got two guides with me right now, Americans who have adopted Tuscany as their homeland. Anna Piperato lives in Siena, and Anna has her PhD in Italian art history, and she fell in love with the history and the art and the culture of Siena in Tuscany. And Karen Kibbe lives in Livorno. She's lived there for eight years, and she fell in love with, uh, with an Italian guy, Fabrizio, and now Karen leads Americans around Italy from her base in Livorno. Karen and Anna, thanks for joining us. Thanks. Thank you so much. Buongiorno. So you both sound like you love Tuscany. You end up living there. If you were going to brag about Tuscany, how is it distinct from other parts of Italy? Karen. I think part of the beauty of Tuscany is the history and the towns and the architecture. And most people know about our most famous residents like Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo. But what a lot of people don't know is that each village and each town has its own distinct personality foods that we eat and we don't eat anywhere else in the in the region different accents every place you go they have different accents and so we can actually tell each other apart who's a pisan who's a livornese who's a florentine who's a sienese just by how people talk you know and just sitting here at the table with you guys i can just see the fun you have in acknowledging and celebrating the cultural differences and the the rich heritage combined in this relatively small piece of land and even within tuscany you've got these you know the pride of this town and the pride of that town Anna, you live in Siena. Uh, yes. How is Siena distinct, and what, what is Siena proud of? Well, Siena is one of the proudest towns I've ever come across, and of course it's most famous for its, its Palio race. And so within the walls of Siena, we have 17 distinct neighborhoods called Contrade. So uh-huh. they run in the Palio twice a year, and it's just the best example of civic pride, I think, uh, that I've ever witnessed. So, Anna, what is the Palio? The Palio is a race that has been going on in Siena since the 13th century at least, and it has evolved over the centuries, but it basically essentially remains the same. It's the world's longest continuous running horse race. It happens twice, sometimes three times a year. In the city center of Siena, there are horses 
There is pandemonium, there is passion, and it's well worth visiting. And all of this commotion and craziness and thousands of people gathering together, and how long does the race last? <laughs> a minute and 15, 30 seconds, something like that. So 90 like that. seconds. 90 seconds. But the party is before and after. Yes. And you feel that when you go there. And oh, when, you, yes. when you say civic pride, it's important to remember that the notion of Italy is, is relatively new. 150 years ago, there was no Italy. And in the Middle Ages, there was all these little competing city-states. And there's a huge historic uh, rivalry between Florence and Siena. And you, you feel that in many ways. Uh, Karen, how do you feel the competition between uh, city-states like Siena and Florence or Pisa or Livorno and So Livorno and Pisa <laughs> are historic enemies, and we actually have a saying that says, it's better to have a death in the family than a Pisan on your doorstep. So we oh take it a goodness. little seriously over there. <laughs> you know, Pisa really had a, a lot of enemies because I know in Florence they, they love to pee into the river because it goes down to, down to Pisa, right? <laughs> it's true. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, and the Sienese. What are the Sienese in Florence? Oh, well, my, oh my goodness. Gosh. Well, the first time I went there and I was still learning Italian, there was a soccer game. It was when briefly, briefly, Siena was in Series A and they were playing Florence. I didn't know this, but I was outside the church of San Domenico, the Basilica of San Domenico, to visit St. Catherine. And I hear chanting and I asked someone, what are they chanting? And she said, the Sienese fans are chanting to the Florentines, Ricordate Montaperti. Remember Montaperti. Remember that time in 1260 when we beat you. So don't make a Sienese person angry. They tend to hold a grudge. You know, these and this history, it's a little bit playful, but it's a little bit real. It's centuries old. Yes. And when you travel around Tuscany, I find all these gorgeous hill towns, wonderful little squares, and there's a little Florentine flavor. You see the Medici seal because it was in oh, yes. the empire of the little uh, imperial power of Florence yes, in the Middle the Ages. Grand, the Grand Duchy of, of Tuscany that they founded in the, in the 16th century. And what the might you see? You're in, you're in Montepulciano or something, and, and there's the... Am I allowed to say balls on the radio? Yeah, the balls. The balls. The Medici crest is balls. <laughs> they, they took over someplace and slapped their balls on it. I mean, that's and just it how the it balls. is. And it, it, it yes, the balls. Some people say the Medici pills. The Medici pills, the Medici oranges, the, Whatever the, the, it is. There's, the, the globes with the fleur de lis. These orbs up there, and it is... A reminder of the rule of the uh, yes. the power of the Medici, and, fact, and that was Florence. That yes. was Florence. Yeah. But if I may, there was just one town that did not get taken over because Siena got taken over, Livorno did, but Luca did not, and they are still proud about that to this and day. Independent, mm -hmm. independent, independent, Luca. Independent yes. in Tuscany means never with the Medici, the Florentine yes. flag flying. And I just love that. In fact, there's a lot of big castles in Tuscany. What would be a, a castle that means a lot to you, Anna? Well, the castle of Monterigioni, because whenever I see it on the bus, it means I'm nearly home. And so Monterigioni is a little town, population something of 40 now, but it's basically a fortress to protect Siena from the Florentines. So between uh, about 20 minutes outside of Siena, as I say, the Sienese would keep watch and make sure those Florentines weren't trying to come and take over Siena, which they were doing from the 12th to the 16th century. And so this fort managed to keep those Florentines back until the 16th century when they finally surrendered. Wow. They were never taken over. But you can visit that today and you can walk the walls and dress up as a medieval knight. I love how they have festivals and different excuses to remember the history. And yes. in this case, you would have, I would imagine, a festival that takes you back to the middle, all the pageantry. Yes, you go into Monterigioni in the summer and you, you exchange your euros for these little silver and gold coins to buy your beer and your, you know, <laughs> your meat. And they have live theater and music and performers. So this is Monterigioni. Yes. M-O-N-T-E-R-I-G G-I-O-N-I, and it's a great castle that you can mm -hmm. put on your, on your list if you're traveling in Tuscany. 
Anna Piperato makes her home in Siena, and Karen Kibbe lives near the coast in Livorno. There are guides to the romantic towns and villages of Tuscany right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Karen, when you think of other ways to celebrate the heritage today as a traveler, what's an example that comes to mind to you in Tuscany? Even though it sounds a little bit cliche, I think I have to say the food. Mm-hmm. I'm really researching out what people eat in specific places. And if you're traveling, especially in the fall, there are so many things that we call sagras, and they are little festivals in little towns, like San Miniato has the Truffle Festival. Personally, my all-time favorite is going to the island of Capraia, and we have a cuttlefish festival. Oh, now I was in a little town in Tuscany. I forget the name, but I'll never forget the festival. It was the Artichoke Festival. Oh, oh, oh where was that? I don't know. I can see the posters for it, but and, yes. And the <laughs> ladies were, were sitting there with their baskets, cutting up the artichokes, and everybody was frying them up or however you do it, and it was so delicious. But what it made even more delicious was the jovial atmosphere. Everybody was in a great mood, and they were just gorging on Artichokes. You can find it for the bruschetta. As soon as we have the olive harvest, there's plenty of bruschetta festivals, new wine festivals, uh, wild boar festivals. Porcini mushrooms. Porcini mushroom festivals. Now, the key word, you said sagra? Sagra. How do you spell that? S-A-G-R-A. Karen, you mentioned the importance of recognizing how the cuisine is tied to the heritage and the culture. Exactly. So important to eat both with the season and eat locally. You want to eat what the people want to feed you. Yes, I generally ask, especially if I'm outside of my town, uh, what's their specialty? What's in season? I let the waiters order for me and also the wine because most Italians are quite well-versed in what wine goes with what food, yeah. and I trust them. I'm not that sophisticated of a palate, but when I get that good marriage, what do you call it? A, a pairing. Bain, a, there's a word about a, a, bain, a, a beautiful pairing of the food and the wine. You feel like you just go into orbit. And you can make quite a social faux pas if you pick the wrong wine. And do the wrong? <laughs> oh, my goodness, yeah. So, so go with the locals. And remember, when you have that printed menu and you have the little special sheet in there that's the daily specials, this is not the push list for tourists. This is what's fresh and what's a better value and what the locals are going to go for, and I'd highly recommend it. Me too. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Karen Kibbe and Anna Piperato. We're talking about the wonders of Tuscany. You know, when we're thinking about having fun in Tuscany, I I think there's ways to kind of really connect with the nature, and oftentimes that gets overlooked. And a bike ride seems to me in in a beautiful part of Tuscany would be a good idea. Is there any sort of best opportunity for biking in Tuscany? Well, if you're really serious about biking, in the fall, there's a thing called the Eroica in Gaiole and Chianti. So Gaiola, that's G-A-I-O-L-E. Yes. And so that's in the heart of Chianti, the Chianti Classico, and every year people bring their bikes from the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and they dress up in the outfit that matches their bike, and they go along the dirt roads, and they finish every day with a glass of wine. It's not a race, it's an experience. It sounds great. A glass of Chianti Classico in Chianti with your classic bike. After your long bike ride, you've earned it. And people come from all over the world to do that, but I would not in a million years say it's touristy. No. No, it's a joyful event. For all. So many fun ways to distinguish your travels. Karen, you live on the coast, and I know everybody goes to the interior for the hill towns, but there's a lot of charm overlooked on the coast and on a little island off the coast. What are your tips for that? Anna and I were talking about this just before we came in here, that it's a bit unknown to most Americans, uh, but the coastal area of Tuscany is very important to the Tuscans. It's where everybody goes on the weekends, everybody goes to play, where all of the Americans are maybe up there in the Cinque Terre. That's All right. of the Tuscans are down on the island of Elba. 
Uh, and it's not always the most convenient place. I do have to say, you need to be a little bit of an intrepid traveler. You're going to need your rental car. You're going to need to take the ferry uh, from the town of Piombino to go over to Elba. But once you're over there, there's small villages, uh, hiking trails, wonderful restaurants, beautiful beaches, and it's full of Italians. Uh, there's not so many Americans. There's a few French, some Germans. The Dutch have discovered it. But there's wonderful swimming, nice. uh, wonderful wine, wonderful food. And I have to say, because it got some strange press, I could say. I visited for the first time this summer the island of Giglio, which mm. is a very short ferry ride from Porto Santo Stefano, which is a bit south or you could take your you could take your billion dollar cruise ship there, couldn't you? Well just if, dock it on the rocks. Exactly. And I wasn't sure what I was going to find when I went there because that was the only image I had really seen was of that the crab, crashed that, cruise ship. Yeah. And instead, uh, the little port area where you can dock your boat or where you can get to by a ferry is gorgeous. And on top of the hill, where I saw maybe the most beautiful sunset I've ever seen in Tuscany, there is a 14th century village. Giglio. Giglio. And then, of course, uh, if you'd rather be exiled like Napoleon to a beautiful <laughs> island, you can go to Elba. In just a minute, Karen Kibbe and Anna Piperato take your calls at 877-333-7425 to help you explore the villages of Tuscany. Later in the hour, Ross McPhee tells us about some of the fiercest, biggest, and strangest animals that ever roamed the earth and what happened to them. It's Travel with Rick Steves. After pushing through the crowds at the must-see sites in Rome and Venice, Tuscany is always a good idea. From the home of the Renaissance in Florence to the hill towns and farm stays you'll find throughout the region, Tuscany is a great way to savor the essence of Italy. Anna Piperato was raised in Pennsylvania, and Karen Kibbe comes from Oregon. But now they make their homes in Siena and Livorno, and they specialize in showing visitors around the region. They're here to help you at 877-333-RICK. And Bill's calling from Livermore in California. Hi, Bill. Ciao, Rick. Uh, yeah, I was listening, and it's it's really exciting for me. I have a trip planned. We're going to be driving from Rome up the coast, and I've done this several times up to my relatives up in Liguria. And this time I'm bringing my son and daughter-in-law and grandkids, and they're little four and eight, and along with my wife. And we're looking at uh, staying along the coast there. One of the places I've looked at south of Livorno, I was wanting to get a little feedback on is Castiglione della Pescaia, which is uh, near Elba, too. And so... I was kind of curious about the things to see and do around there, wondering whether Elba would be a good place to go. I know that the, they have these blue flag beaches, which uh, Castiglione apparently has one of the best beaches. And hmm. my grandkids live on Santa Cruz on the California coast, but they want to see beaches. Oh, so. you got a four-year-old, uh, eight-year-old. You got to kind of have some beaches. I know Karen lives in Livorno, right? Yes. Yeah, so right. down where you're talking about, there's wonderful beaches down there, and there are lots of families that go on vacation. In Castiglione, so I think your kids might even be able to find a few playmates there on the beach. And the water uh, is really what's different. So uh, the California coast the, tends to be a bit chilly. The water is the bigger yeah. waves and a bit colder. And so I think that your kids will really enjoy being able to be in some water nice. that's a, not quite bath water, but <laughs> a little more tepid, shall we say, than the it's Pacific. It's be very clean and, it uh, is. and clear. And then there's some towns where, like, you know, you're talking about Elba. Is that worth a... Would that be something young kids would enjoy, a boat ride out there in a day? 
I think so. You know, the boat ride doesn't take very long. If you're taking the ferry, it only takes about maybe a half an hour, 40 minutes to get from Piombino. And I think what you have to sort of decide, too, is if you're going to go to Elba, I would spend the night because, uh, uh, unfortunately, it is a bit costly to get your car out there. So you can leave your car in mm. uh, Piombino, take the ferry mm. over, and just hang out around. The ferry goes to the main town. The, the ferry goes to the main town. But if you were want to explore the island at all, I would definitely recommend staying two nights just to make the cost worth getting your car over. Okay, and you would need a car there. Yes, well, there is some public transportation around the island. If, you do, if you're willing to do a little bit of research into it, you can make that happen. Okay. It just now takes a little extra effort. Like, um, you know, we, we've been to a couple of the Etruscan necropolises like Terquina and Cerveteri, but um, I think there's some archaeological sites, and Grosseto looks like an interesting city as well. Are those worth, uh, are there places around? In terms Ar- of an, an Etruscan site, I think I would, really close to Piombino is a small little town called Pupolonia that's up on a hill, and at the base of Pupolonia is the Gulf of Barati, which also has mm. a beach, <laughs> and it has Etruscan tombs. Okay, kids, we're going to go to the beach, but we're going to see the Etruscan tombs first. <laughs> exactly. All right, so that's this is... compromise. And they are literally on the beach. <laughs> oh, that's good. It is oh, the wow, one area where the Etruscans yeah. actually settled So what's the name the of that again? Pupolonia for, is okay. the name of the village. Okay, and Bill, your kids will have fun with that one. Pupolonia. Yeah. Pupolonia. Yeah, and oh, that sounds great. <laughs> the Gulf of Barati is the mm-hmm. name of the gulf where the water is, and you can get English tours. Bill, thanks oh, for your call. Great. Thank you so much. Ciao. Best wishes Ciao. on your trip. Martha's calling in from Shrewsbury in Massachusetts. Martha, have you been to Italy lately? Yes. Uh, and in fact, just last summer, had a wonderful experience in the hill town of Pienza and loved both the small town, but, but the experience which you introduced me to through your web of a creciola, which is a beautiful agriturismo, something that I would never have thought about doing in Tuscany. So you I met Isabella previous... and Carlo? Yes, I did. We stayed um, in their agriturismo and had an experience unlike experiences of being in Florence um, and other bigger cities. It was an opportunity to be on their farm and be invited into their family. Mm and having meals and learning how to make their local pasta, peachy, and mm. understanding how I, to taste olive oil and wine and experience their farm, which you only do normally when you have relatives. But they, as warm hosts, made all of their guests at the Agri-Tree smell part of their family. You know, when you said that, it just took me right back there. This is I love staying in agri and I love the cultural boot camp they put you through. I'm the last person that would ever personally make homemade pasta and I did it there and I loved it and it was rolling those little peachy, <laughs> peachy pasta and uh, Isabel was so gentle and caring and such a beautiful teacher of that culture and it reminds me of the beauty of these agriturismo staying on a family farm and one of the great joys of my work when I'm updating my Tuscany guidebook or my Italy guidebook is getting a car a rental car and visiting all these farms and what really blows me away Martha is every time I drop in on a farm there's all these adventurous American travelers that are really immersed in the culture, making their own pasta, learning how to follow the dog and find the truffles, and, and just immersing themselves in the culture. It's almost like it's an advertising setup waiting for me to come, just letting me know how much fun it is to stay in an agriturismo. But this is an important part of your Tuscan experience, is staying on a farm 
and a farm that rents rooms can call itself an agriturismo, and I understand that it has to be a working farm. It has to be making money in agriculture in order to get this prestigious title, and it's a clever way that the Italian society or government is letting small family farms kind of um, make ends meet by renting rooms and being in this agriturismo trade. I know with Isabella and Carlo, who run Crietole, it's a week-long stay. Did you stay for about a week there, Martha? We did, um, and part of the joy beyond the wonderful food and the wonderful friendship and exploring the produce of the farm was the entry into Pienza and their introduction to the artist um, and mm. to the history and the walk that was uh, just mind-blowing, where they took us into a cave that was on their farm that was discovered a few years ago. It had been a cave where cattle had been stored or staying, and they cleaned it out. Carlo cleaned it out, and they discovered this beautiful carved altar with a Madonna and mm. child. And then you go beyond this into a further into the cave, and you discovered Etruscan carvings on the wall of a hermit's cave, and you you realize that there's so much history still there. Mm. And to discover it with the people whose land it is makes it more than a history or an art lesson. It really becomes going back in time mm. and experiencing it with them, which I don't think you would get as a tourist in a hotel. If there's something about being with the families and exploring yeah. their life with them that opens you up to new experiences. Yeah, we've got another friend in, in Tuscany who's or in outside of Orvieto who's uh, got a farm and uh, Cicilia and, and the uh, Botai family. And in their kitchen, there's a like a magical door. I thought it was just to a pantry, but it goes down <laughs> into, down the stairs, into this subterranean world of passageways that go back, probably back to ancient times. Thousands of years. Yeah, yeah. and mm -hmm. they're stacked with bottles of wine Even that better. the family has made. <laughs> Even <should> better. Be. <laughs> uh, you know, Martha, you're talking about Pienza, P-I-E-N-Z-A. It's a town famous for its architecture. Uh, Anna, you've got your, your PhD in Italian art history. Tell us about Pienza. What's so important about it? Well, Pienza um, is a town actually named after Pope Pius II, who was Pope in the 15th century. And he had this idea of making the ideal town made to measure for man. And so he was from nearby Corsignano. And then he was a real Renaissance man, actually, but from Siena. So he brought a Florentine architect in to design this ideal town. And it's a perfect balance between nature and man, architectural perfection, and the beauty of God's land as well. Humanism. Hu exactly. That is humanism. I love humanism. Yes. It's the greatest thing about the yes. 1500s and the Renaissance and all that. And actually, so the town itself is, is lovely, as, as Martha will attest, and the food is delicious, and mm. we won't even get into the arts, <laughs> but the views of the entire Val d'Orcia and the relationship yeah. that man was and is still able to have with nature, and that's actually why it's one of, uh, it's a UNESCO World Heritage site, not just Pienza, but the entire Val d'Orcia, where it's located. Wasn't that the famous scene in uh, Gladiator? <laughs> yes, when, the Elysian uh, Field. Oh, man. Was that Russell Crowe, right? Coming, yes. Walking through the field, brushing his hands yes. against the wheat or the grain, and coming home. Yes. And I got to walk right over that, and it's just <laughs> down below Pienza, and yes. I just thought, man, this is so beautiful. Carlo takes you on that walk, Rick. <laughs> Carlo. Oh, Carlo's wonderful. Yeah. That's, uh, that's an early that's, morning walk at Russell Crowe moment. and they walk mm. you along that path. Nice. Martha, thanks for your call, and thanks for those memories. Thank you. Our guides to Tuscany on Travel with Rick Steves are Karen Kibbe and Anna Piperato. 
They're each American-born, but now they've made Tuscany their full-time home. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and calling from Washington, D.C., is Anne. Anne, thanks for calling. Yes, another Ashley, Anna. Anna Maria. Anna, Anna Maria. And what a delight to chat with you. My better half and I are actually moving to the Florence area. We both love it, and my family is actually, I feel like a traitor because my family's from the Venice area in particular. Mm. But as we go to visit, obviously we're looking at various properties and have our mind kind of set on certain areas and small villages. What tips do you have for us to help us experience the daily life and traditions in the small villages, areas around Florence? Because we're not necessarily going as tourists, we're also looking at it as becoming our permanent home. Wow. Well, these uh, two women have both uh, moved into Tuscany and seem to be enjoying it. What, what, what would you advise somebody like Anne who's thinking about uh, doing the same thing? Well, um, first of all, do, do you speak Italian? Very poorly enough that I wouldn't share it on air. <laughs> <laughs> well, the main thing is to get speaking and to start talking to local people, even if it's just going to the same bar for your morning, you know, mm-hmm. cafe or cappuccino and your, your breakfast and just... You know, maybe trying to find a, a language course, getting to or do a language exchange, you know, with people who want to learn English and really mm-hmm. just get involved in your local community. If you if you go to church, go to service, if mm-hmm. you just to become involved somehow in the community, as you would do here, you can't just live in your house and like look out the window. You've got to be a part of where you are. And in places like Tuscany, I would imagine there's two worlds of expats, those who hang yes. out with other expats and don't learn the language uh, and mm-hmm. those who really immerse themselves in the community. It's yes. not right or wrong, but if, no, if you want to connect with the community, pretty clearly you need to do it in their language. Exactly. All Correct. right. Karen, any right. ideas also? You've done a, a great job of uh, diving right into Livorno. I think that Anna actually said exactly what I was thinking in terms of going to the same coffee shop mm. every day, yeah. uh, having your what we call a flying coffee where you <laughs> stand at the counter and you just sort of throw your espresso back and check out the newspaper headlines is really important because as soon as they've yeah. seen you for about four or five days in a row, mm-hmm. <laughs> they realize you're they'll serious. They'll recognize you. <laughs> they'll know what kind of coffee often. you want. <laughs> yes. And you and can I'll... ask people, uh, you know, what, are, what do they like to do in the villages around and, and stay up on, on what's going on, like the sagras. And, mm-hmm. and that's where you find mm-hmm. the villages that people aren't going to as tourists. They're going for an event. Yeah, get yourself invited. <laughs> All right. And Excellent. good luck, Anne. That sounds like an adventure for you and your husband. Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Okay. Bon, how do you say good luck? Bon, uh, uh, bon, bon fortuna. It, no, you say in bocca lupo, in the mouth of the wolf. Crepi lupo. Oh. In the mouth of the wolf. In the, the mouth wolf. of the wolf. And the response would be, may the wolf die. die which okay. is very hard for me to say because I'm a okay. she-wolf in Siena. Let me hear you say that to Karen and Karen answer then. Okay. Karin, in bocca lupo. Crepi lupo. <laughs> There you go, and that's your first Italian lesson. <laughs> Thank you so much. Language courses are needed. Yes. Okay, take care. Bye. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been venturing from Pupoloni all the way to Siena. We're talking about great cuisine, great palio horse races, medieval banquets. And we're talking with Anna Piperato and Karen Kibbe. I could talk all day about Tuscany. It's so great to have you guys here. I, let's just close off this little travel fantasy with a favorite meal from Tuscany. I'll, I'll start off because I, we were talking about agriturismos and I stayed in the farm of a woman named Signora Gori and I'll never forget the 
It was the, like the complete experience. We, she walked us proudly through her farm. She picked up the sheep and, and hugged it. And I remember the, the hay was in the air and the sun was coming through the hay and it would give everything a glow. And we could hear the squealing of the pigs in the, in the, in the butcher house up on the hill. And she goes, that's our own little Beirut, she said. That night we sat down at the dinner table and we were in this classic living room surrounded by portraits of all Signora Gori's ancestors through the generations going back couple hundred years, and we had this wonderful pecorino cheese, this wonderful prosciutto, all right on the farm, a zero-kilometer meal, the most beautiful wine. And I just thought, this is really good living, and this is living that a traveler can, can share. And I was sitting there with the family, the, the little girl next to me, the, the little kids, they only like their spaghetti bianco, right? Just a butter and, and oil or something like that. And she was learning how to twist it on her fork. And it was just the most marvelous experience and it was part of budget travel for a traveler who will venture out there and get to know the people by staying with a family on a farm. That's the kind of experience you can have in Tuscany. Karen, what's an experience, what's a meal that brings back memories for you in Tuscany that a traveler could enjoy? So I think if you're traveling along the coast, since that's what I've been talking about, around the town of Livorno, the most important thing is to eat fish-based dishes and uh, octopus. Mm. Uh, that is really one of our favorite things, and it freaks people out a little bit, <laughs> uh, but you got to try it. It's really delicious. And in Livorno, we eat a dish called cachuco, which is a fish-based, uh, tomato-based stew uh, with all kinds of fish in it. And tomatoes first came into Italy through the port town of Livorno, or it's one of the first places. So this is a stew with a mix of whatever fish they're catching? Whatever fish they're catching. Every family has their own recipe. The name again? A cachuco. Cachuco. is the name. And then afterwards, uh, if you're in the area, you can find it anywhere between maybe Pisa, uh, Livorno, along the coast. Uh, we have a special drink called Ponche. <laughs> and Ponche is coffee with rum and a little bit of secret ingredients <laughs> that everybody has after dinner. <laughs> and uh, it makes you feel very local. You've been in Italy a long time because I wish people could see you talking with your hands <laughs> as, as you do this. And a piperato. What's, a, what's a, a food memory that we can close this conversation with? Gosh, well, Tuscany is wonderful because it has every every kind of food imaginable, but I live more inland, and so I agree with you, Rick, just a, a wonderful fresh pecorino or semi-aged pecorino with some cured meats. I'm also a huge fan of anchovies and sardines, these little mm. fish that, are, that go back hundreds of years because mm-hmm. they could be preserved in salt. A nice glass of Chianti to wash it all down mm-hmm. with, and perhaps... If it's the right season, you know, hey, our neighbors just, you know, shot a boar. We're going to make some sausages and have some peachy with boar sauce. And oh. I am there. You are there. That's, that's that part of, the, part of the terroir, the soil, yes. the heritage. But it's still simple. And it's, yeah, kilometer zero or maybe five in some cases. And right. it's just that, that good, hearty, really simple peasant food that goes back hundreds of years because this is what, well, farmers would eat a lot of uh, bread-based things. So you make your bread for the week and whatever is left over, you don't waste it. The bread is without salt. It becomes rock hard. And that means that you can, it really absorbs all of the different sauces. So if you've got leftover, you know, cannellini beans, you've got some kale, you've got some this, you've got some that, you just, you know, tomatoes, mm. thank you, Livorno, just put it on top of the stale bread. And after, you know, doing it for an hour, you've got Papa al pomodoro, and it's delicious. You can enjoy the culture in the museums and the galleries and the palaces yes. and in your mouth, yes. the beautiful cuisine. <laughs> and a pepperado. Karen Kibbe, thank you so much, and I'm on my way to Tuscany. <laughs> Grazie mille. Ciao. Ciao.
There's more about our guests on our website at ricksteves.com radio. If you've ever visited the American Museum of Natural History in New York, you've seen the work of our next guest. Ross McPhee is the museum's curator of mammals, and he's been on more than 50 expeditions across the world to study the prehistoric animal kingdom. He tells us what happened to the megafauna that once roamed the Earth and what their extinctions can show us about our future. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. Ik ben Ferdi Mengi en ik ben van België en ik reis met Rick Steves. Now, that was Flemish and it means I am Ferdi Mengi from Belgium and I travel with Rick Steves. Many scientists fear we're already in the middle of a mass extinction event. It's the sixth one Earth has hosted so far. It's one in which many species of plants and animals are dying off so fast, it'll require millions of years to recover the biological diversity the world currently supports. The curator of mammals at the American Museum of Natural History has been comparing the competing theories that try to explain why many of the world's fiercest and strangest creatures disappeared from almost every continent long ago. Ross McPhee explores how the world ended for the mastodon, for the giant Irish deer, the gorgon hippopotami, giant Maltese swan, and other creatures that might strain the imagination. That's in his book, The End of the Megafauna. Ross, thanks for being here. It's a pleasure, Rick. Now, your book is all about megafauna. What is megafauna? Megafauna, as we define it here, very simply is any species that's over 100 pounds. You made an interesting point that big animals have to eat more than little animals in order to get the nutrition that they need, and they might be more susceptible to changes that make them unable to survive. What's an example that you can draw from just how a big animal is different than a small animal, and it might be tougher for them to get through a difficult extinction time? Being big has its advantages. Uh, One thing is that you don't get predators on your back all the time, Mm. which a lot of species would regard as a good thing. The thing that is most closely associated with being big, however, is long generation times, long pregnancies, long time growing up, Hmm. maybe a long lifespan as well. Because they live longer than small animals, don't they, generally? In general, they do. And that can be a very good strategy if things are going along Hmm. as you expect them to go. But if you get a disaster, and by a disaster, that could be people, it could be climate change, it could be a bunch of things— then in certain circumstances, being big is not a good idea at all. Why not? Well, if we take elephants as a good example, and we can use them as sort of a model for what mammoths and mastodons were like, pregnancies last 22 to 24 months. So just imagine, you're an elephant herd out in, say, northern Canada 13,000 years ago, and whatever happens, happens such that your food supply suddenly becomes very dodgy. The youngsters are the likeliest to die, and the very old. And it's going to take a long time, consequently, to build your populations back up Mm -hmm. again. If you keep getting hit and hit and hit again Mm. by the same sort of bad circumstances, then it's possible to see how you're on a slippery slope to extinction. Whereas smaller animals with shorter gestation periods could uh, be more nimble that way, perhaps. That's the ticket. When we're thinking about big creatures, what are some examples? I mean, it was fascinating to read about the giant elephant bird, a bird that's 500 pounds, three-foot-tall eggs, and uh, to this day their prehistoric shells litter the beaches in Madagascar. What are some other examples that we have of these giant creatures, and how big were they? 
Well, they they went all the way up to probably 10,000 pounds and more. In fact, there's some authors actually think that some of the disappeared were on the order of as much as 20,000 pounds. Now, in relative, I don't know what that means. Well, what it means is like five elephants. Wow, so an elephant. Yeah, that's the currency. Ha. And uh, with, with elephant birds, you've got the largest bird from at least recent times, uh, mm-hmm. roughly 500 pounds, but there were giant lizards. I don't know whether people know about Komodo dragons from mm-hmm. Indonesia, but a very close relative, but very much larger, lived in Australia about 40,000 years ago. This was a huge, huge monster, maybe 30 feet long. There were also a number of crocodiles that have since died out, also hmm. a fearsome kind of thing to contemplate. And there were, in the Americas, the largest group, that at least the largest group that I think is really interesting, are the ground sloths. Everybody knows about tree sloths because they're famous these days with cartoon shows. But those guys come in at about 10 to 15 pounds. They had relatives living as recently as 10,000 years ago in South America that were as much as four tons. Holy cow. That's a big sloth. That is a lot of sloth. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking big sloths with Ross McPhee. He's a paleomammalogist and the curator for the American Museum of Natural History in New York City. Ross explores the reasons why only parts of Africa and South Asia retain any of its fantastic supersized beasts in his new book, The End of the Megafauna. The book includes illustrations of what many of these animals would have looked like based on DNA records. We have web links to his book with the notes for this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. So, Ross, we're thinking of, you know, almost the cartoon book, um, Mega Animals, but we do have, it seems like they're close cousins still running around on the planet today. What are examples of close relatives to megafauna that survived to this day? Well, uh, something we haven't talked about so far are rhinos. Everybody knows what a rhino is, Mm -hmm. but the rhinos we still have with us are essentially living in the tropics or nearby desert areas, savanna areas in Africa and South Asia. So they look like it, megafauna, don't they? They look like they could fit right in there with it. They are. Yeah. They are serious megafauna. Oh. But they had relatives right up until about 10,000 years ago that lived throughout Europe, right into northern Asia and, and, and Siberia, hmm. uh, that were clearly adapted to conditions very different from what surviving rhinos are able to deal with today. You can almost guess by looking at an animal if it's a, quote, megafauna or a relative of it. Alligators, elephants, hippos, giant turtles. Is there something that they have in common? Well, that being big is actually a good evolutionary strategy under certain circumstances. Mm -hmm. If you have very consistent environments over a long period, it's not bad to be big. Changeability is the bad thing. Just because of size. Size means that, yes, you're in control of your environment, but you have to eat a lot, Mm -hmm. especially if you're a herbivore. You have to be able to get between areas where the food is located. Mm -hmm. And it's just the way it is physiologically. It's the way it is that you're not going to be a good breeder. The rate of natural increase, the number of babies that a female elephant is going to have, even if she lives for 60 years, it's probably only three or four at best that are going to survive to adulthood. So you can do the math. If you lose a lot of your youngsters through predation, which can happen with small elephants or disease or overhunting, there's a lot of possibilities. Then you're also imperiling your population curve Mm because where are you going to recruit the new ones from if it takes so long to replace? 
Russ, you've studied this for a long time, and uh, it was interesting you were quoting Darwin as saying the Toxodon was the strangest creature he had ever seen. In your studies, uh, what have you come across that's just freakishly paleo? Well, lots of things. Not all of them became extinct in the last 50,000 years. There is an image in the book that I like a lot that Peter Schutten, the illustrator, did of something called the marsupial tapir. It's not a real tapir because a tapir is a placental mammal like us. This is a marsupial. had a pouch. The females did for raising the young. So it looks like it was put together by a committee, even more so Mm. than a camel, which Mm. is what we always use for that, for Mm. that image. It had a head very vaguely like a tapir with a big proboscis on it. Its eyes were probably perched close to the top of its head, something like a hippo, responsible for the argument that it might have been semi-aquatic, but huge limbs, I mean, just huge, with armed with some of the longest claws you can imagine. It came in maybe 200, 250 pounds, which is not huge for a megafaunal species, but a very strange-looking one indeed. And mm-hmm. there's been a lot of argument about how it was put together, what adaptations it really had. Was it aquatic or did it rely on those big arms and legs and claws to dig out roots and tubers? You know, just paging through your book, it's like a trip through, it's like traveling around the world in tens of hundreds of thousands of years ago. How did your illustrator, Peter Shute, who did such a beautiful job illustrating this, how did he come up with the details to portray the animals so vividly? I mean, is it pretty much his imagination or is there some way to make these illustrations accurate? I've worked with a number of illustrators over my career, and all I can say is this. The really good ones just know. They've got an intuitive sense of how an animal, including a fantastic animal that's extinct that they've never seen, ought to be put together on the basis of, say, its bones or its teeth or something of that nature. And as to putting them into realistic circumstances, that sort of thing, There you need direct knowledge, and Peter is really good at that. He's Mm. self-trained, but a real naturalist. He just knows stuff. Mm. Many of his best illustrations are of birds, which are his particular specialty, especially birds in the South Pacific. Even though they're extinct, you know that they must have existed because they're so perfect. But it's basically based on bones and fossils, or, or what, what is the raw material that lets him draw these conclusions and, and you know, put flesh and skin to it? Fundamentally, it's the skeleton. That's mm-hmm. where we start. If there are close surviving relatives and they have particular, mm-hmm. let's, let's talk about birds, particular mm-hmm. coloration or head ornamentation or things like that, mm-hmm. then you can, you can put that in as well. That's all going to be guesswork. Right. But, but so what? So what? It, yeah. We're talking <laughs> about the past. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Ross McPhee, and his book is The End of the Megafauna, talking about the fate of the world's hugest, fiercest, and strangest animals. Russ, this is a travel show. A lot of us are curious about this. What museums do you find are the, are the most instructive for somebody that really wants to learn about this? I would say there's three places that are really spectacular in that regard. One is the Natural History Museum in London, which has skeletal reconstruction, skeletons of many of the megafauna that I talk about in the book. Mm-hmm. So does the Paris Natural History Museum, Hmm. and in a lot of cases, even better than those that are in Britain in terms of of completeness. They're not necessarily shown in the most advantageous kind of way, but if you're into bones and if you're into the dead, then Paris is certainly a place to go to. A third is well off the beaten track, but I know for people who listen to your show, it, it would be of interest. 
That's the museum, the Zoological Museum in St. Petersburg. That sounds like doubtful, right, Mm -hmm. in terms of what they'd be able to present. But we have to remember that the earliest evidence that we had of very well-preserved so-called permafrost mummies, like the mummies of mammoths that are still being found today, came out of Russia right at the end of the 18th century. Mm. And they have specimens of that age and later on display, and they're very compellingly done. And then you're the curator of the American Museum of Natural History in New York City. What is your goal there, and and, um, what are its fortes? We're famous as the Dinosaur Museum, and I have to remind people all the time that my megafauna are mammals. They're not dinosaurs, even though some of them were dinosaur-sized. We do a good job of presenting them. Again, they're in the forms of skeletons, but with sufficient explanatory detail in terms of labeling for you to be able to understand what they're related to, if they have living relatives, where they lived, Mm -hmm. and when they lived. Ross McPhee is the animal curator at the American Museum of Natural History in New York City. He's also the author of The End of the Megafauna, which includes illustrations of what scientists believe giant turtles, ground sloths, wild horses, and saber-toothed cats probably looked like. Ross tells us more about the sixth extinction that we may be plunging into in an extra to this week's Travel with Rick Steves. You can hear it from our website at ricksteves.com radio. Let's just wrap up talking about why you wrote this book and why it even matters. Did you have some sort of a a wish that people would take away from reading your book? I hope they take away concern. I hope they take away the idea that evidence is the only thing that counts in any walk of life. And with regard to megafauna in particular, I hope that they see that they are the real canaries in the mine shaft, much more so than a lot of other animals we might point to. You only have to look at the extinction of the northern white rhino. The last northern white rhino died out a year ago, effectively happened because the last male died. That's a a twig of evolution that is never coming back, even if we're able to make Mm. hybrids with southern white rhinos. Mm. That's a tragedy by any definition. I think my fundamental interest here was to take on the argument that people were responsible for all these losses. This is a very common theme. Mm-hmm. that it was overhunting by humans, for example, in North America that caused the extinction of mammoths and mastodonts 10,000 years ago. There is a certain amount of evidence in favor of that, but at the same time that people were first coming into the Americas, it was a time of great climate change. We were coming out of an ice age into a warm period, and there were dramatic changes associated with that. There's also other theories out there, like infectious diseases or perhaps an impactor from outer space, like the one that killed off the dinosaurs 66 million years ago. Because you, you write about a fireball 13,000 years ago that just sounds like an amazing event, a catastrophic event. If it happened, and that's yeah. the problem. That's the other thing that I wanted to underline for people, that the actual fact basis for any of these theories that I just mentioned is very thin indeed. Mm-hmm. And what science is all about is the evidence. So rather than just assume that we know everything, I think it's very important to outline that these extinctions, the ones that humans might have been involved with and therefore are different from all of the big extinctions of the past, are worth investigating in much more detail. So if we care about saving the world from mass extinctions, including the human species, and if we have the intellectual grasp to see beyond our own lifespan or our own quarterly profit statements, what can we do to help the future? 
Well, that's always the big question. It's one thing to encourage people to get involved and to at least understand what the issues are, which I regard as the most important thing. Mm -hmm. It's clearly a very different thing to get governments behind you to do the necessary. But just speaking in theoretical terms, the best thing that could happen would be for the surviving part of the Earth's biota, in other words, all of the living things that are still with us, if large portions of the planet could be set aside for those species, and then humans and the exploitation of these areas just kept out. Boy, that's a tough sell. Indeed, which is <laughs> which is why I never get very far with it when I'm arguing with people. You mean not develop it, just leave that wealth sitting there? The evidence is that if you leave them alone, they will come back. Yeah. A beautiful example are whales. Yeah. Whales are still being hunted by some countries, but the big moratorium prevented overall destruction of many species. And what the recent surveys suggest, with the exception of the Greenland right whale, which still seems to be in trouble, all the others are making noticeable progress. Hmm. And my hope is that things stay that way. You the know, fact that there's even less hunting of whales. That's a very important point to make is progress is not unrealistic. If you set your mind to it, you can bring great lakes back to life. You can let endangered species become no longer endangered. It is possible to, to help out. You can't give up. Now, to what degree is climate change a player in your concern about the future? Well, climate change could be a big player. There are, of course, projections that we're going to have at least two degrees and perhaps more of global temperature elevation in the next hundred years or less. That doesn't sound like much, but if you look into the details and go into the weeds, you see that it's going to make a very substantial difference. Two places where it's going to make a huge difference are the polar regions, because it just so happens that the poles get affected earlier and much more heavily mm -hmm. than temperate and tropical regions during periods of climate change. We know this from, mm. from ancient records. It's the challenge of our age. It absolutely is, but like many other challenges, what it requires is thought and, and application. And if one assumes that you don't really need to know that much, you mm -hmm. can solve the problems through gut instinct, then we're not going to make any progress on this or mm -hmm. any other issue. Yeah. With regard to climate change, I think that there's at least a few things that are just straight physics. And if you ignore them, then you might as well ignore gravity. So why wouldn't we coalesce behind the idea that further melting of the ice caps in Antarctica and Greenland are just not a good idea? Mm -hmm. And if the correlation is with fossil fuels, then the next conclusion is that you've got to do something about that. Spoken like a true scientist. Ross McPhee, thanks for writing The End of the Megafauna. Just reading through your book, it's like traveling, but in a whole different era, and it is just filled with inspiration that really does apply to where we are today. Thanks a lot, and best wishes. I hope so. Yep, take care. Thank you very much. Great pleasure, Rick. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton, Isaac Kaplan-Wilner, and Kazmara Hall. We get website support from America Nacone, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to the Radio Foundation in New York for their help this week. You'll find guest information, program extras, and you can listen again on demand at ricksteves.com radio. Each year, Rick Steves Tour Guides take thousands of free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through Europe, one small group at a time. Next year, you can choose from more than 40 different vacations in Europe's best destinations, from Ireland to Greece and practically everywhere in between. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.